Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, May 26, 2019, and this is show number 733. Well, next week, Steve and I are off to San Jose to attend AltConf. If you haven't heard of it, it's an alternative conference that runs parallel to WWDC, Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. They stream the live keynote from WWDC to another theater where we will get to watch with a bunch of other people who also could never get into WWDC. It's our first time going to AllConf, and I'm super excited. I've heard a lot of great things about it. We're going to be meeting up with several Nerd Apple friends of ours, and we've managed to get ourselves invited to a couple of parties that sound like we will make new friends. Hopefully, I'll have lots of fun content to tell you about when we meet up, uh, not this coming week, but the week after that. If you're in Europe or Africa and staying up late on a school night to attend the live NoSillacast is a problem, maybe you could come to this week's live show because it will be on Saturday instead of Sunday because we'll be at WWDC. Now, it'll still be at 5 p.m., so it'll be at 1 a.m. in the England, Ireland, France, Spain, Algeria, and Mali areas, and it'll be 2 a.m. if you're over a bit in Germany, Poland, Slovenia, Libya, Chad, Congo, or Angola. If you do want to attend, head over to podfeet.com slash live on Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, which is actually Sunday in all the countries I just mentioned because it's after midnight. And I think in Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, it's like July something. I don't know. Anyway, it's great fun to chat with the other Nocella castaways and watch the sausage get made behind the scenes. So I hope you will join us. I could not possibly have had more fun on Chit Chat Across the Pond this week. My guest was David Woodbridge, who's been a guest twice before, but he hasn't been on the show since 2015. David's job, and I put that in quotes because if you can call it that, he gets to test out new technology for the visually impaired at the Vision Store, which is part of Vision in Australia. So he basically has the Nocilla Castaway's dream job. He's currently using a Samsung Galaxy S10, Samsung Watch, and Samsung Buds and comparing them to his iPhone 8 and iPhone 10 along with the Apple Watch and AirPods. David is hilarious and brilliant. He lets me make fun of him. And while he has an ever so slight bias, I think he's got a pretty balanced view on those Samsung devices versus the uh, the Apple devices. You can listen to this episode in Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light feed in your podcatcher of choice. Or, of course, there's always a link over on podfeed.com. On Thursday, I got to be a guest on Daily Tech News Show again. Tom, Sarah, Roger, and I talked about a couple of meaty topics along with the top tech news. We talked about a really interesting and discouraging article at cbsnews.com about how we talk to the female voices on our digital assistants and whether the assistants themselves are spreading a bad message. The article explained that some of the assistants respond to inappropriate or even profane comments with docile comments back. I don't want to repeat on air what people say to their assistants, but I can tell you categorically I would not have taught my daughter to respond with things like, I'd blush if I could, as Siri does in one awful example cited in the article. It does appear that Cortana and Google Assistant just play dumb when idiotic things are said to them, but both Siri and Alexa are much weirder. The study cited infers that a contributing factor could be the dramatic reduction in women in computer and information science over the last 30 years. It's gone from 37% in the mid-1980s to 18% now. 
With the pool of available female talent continuing to dwindle, tech companies have an ever-increasing problem of gender diversity to help shape technology to be less biased. Anyway, that was the first chewy topic on Daily Tech News Show, and then we talked about my new favorite topic, electric vehicles. Go check it out in your podcatcher of choice and look for episode 3538, which was entitled Tesla, I'll say this right again, Tesla Jerkface Mode. Or there's a link in the show notes so you can watch the video version over at dailytechnewsshow.com. I also had the great pleasure of being a guest again on the Clockwise podcast this week. If you've never heard it before, it's a great show where Dan Morin and Micah Sargent are the hosts and they have two other guests. We talk about four topics in exactly 30 minutes. It's fast-paced, it's tightly edited, and it gets interesting ideas out in that very short amount of time. This week, I was on with Andrzej Tomic from Slovenia. He's awesome, he's knowledgeable, and very sarcastic. His page on his website, stormingmortal.com, says, quote, Yes, I do sound like an Eastern European Bond villain. Anyway, Ajay, uh, Dan, Micah, and I talked about the latest MacBook keyboard revamp and whether we trust Apple that they got it right this time. We also discussed what's happened, uh, whether what's happened to Huawei could happen to other products. Uh, I had to answer that question, and I had to phone a friend and ask Tom Merritt to help me with my answer to that question, and Tom did a very good job of answering it. We also talked about Apple's proposal to help block trading, uh, tracking cookies from identifying you and yet still give advertisers, advertisers aggregate information on what ads turned into purchases. Finally, we talked about what considerations we may have given to buying an electric vehicle. Can you guess which question was mine? Anyway, you can find this episode of Clockwise at Relay.fm as episode number 295. It was entitled Pixie Dust. That's what Ajay said that Apple sprinkled into the newest keyboards to make them not break. And now let's have a listener review from one of my favorite listeners. Hi, folks. This is Steve back with a product review of Apple's latest wireless earphones, the Powerbeats Pro by Beats by Dre. Okay, that's clumsy. In this review, I'll describe the Powerbeats Pro setup and how they fit and function. I'll discuss how they sound compared with other earphones I've used, and I'll close with my overall assessment and recommendation. By the way, this review is for my buddy Chris. What up, Chris? Upon receiving the package, it was good to see Powerbeats Pro packaging was very Apple-like, simple and clean, leading to an intuitive unboxing and setup. Like most wireless headphones, the Powerbeats Pro came in a case that doubles as a battery to charge them while they're stored. The first thing I noticed on opening the package was how large the Powerbeats Pro charging case is, about twice the volume of the Jabra Elite Sport case and three times the AirPods case. The Powerbeats Pro case is a rounded rectangle measuring about three inches on a side and a bulky one and a half inches thick. Needless to say, these do not fit in one's pocket very easily. Unlike the latest AirPods, the Powerbeats Pro charging case does not support wireless charging. Instead, Apple has stayed with a lightning cable for charging. The Powerbeats Pro themselves are comprised of an earbud that fits into the ear canal, attached to a semi-flexible ear hook that holds the earbud securely in your ear. Each earpiece has a subtle toggle button for volume and a Beats Logo B button that serves multiple functions. As soon as I open the charging case... I was comforted to see the Powerbeats Pro screen pop up on my iPhone, asking me to connect, 
in other words, pair. I hit the connect button, and in less than a second, the earphones were automatically paired with my iPhone. The pop-up window then changed to show me the percentage charge of the earphones as a pair, as well as the case. I tested whether VoiceOver would tell the user the charge of the case and earphones, and it did, but it made one error. Instead of saying, Power Beats Pro 70%, which it shows visually on screen, it said, AirPods 70%. Looks like they need to update the text in VoiceOver. I hit Done, and that was it for Setup. This experience is very similar to how AirPods pair with your iPhone and is a prime example of Apple making good on the It Just Works slogan. Aided by Apple's H1 chip, it's really hard to beat the pairing experience with Apple earphones and an iOS device. Even putting the earphones back in their case was a pleasing experience since they magnetically click into place and are firmly held there, as you can hear now. Since it was pretty quick, let me play that just one more time. I generally use earphones for listening to podcasts and occasionally to music during my workouts, which consist of running and weight training. So I need them to stay in my ears while I'm active and a bit sweaty. If you've heard my previous earphone reviews, you know that my ears are not well suited for earphones, particularly if they don't have any means of support other than the ear canal. Apple's AirPods and most others simply will not stay in my ears. The only success I've had with earphones without ear hooks are Jabra's Elite Sport earphones, which do remain in my ears even while I'm active. So I was encouraged when I first heard the new Powerbeats Pro earbuds have ear hooks to stabilize the earphones in your ears. However, when I tried on the Powerbeats Pro, I was discouraged to find they didn't fit as snugly as I would like. But two features helped me resolve that problem. First, they come with four sets of rubberized tips of varying size that attach to the earbuds. I swapped out the installed tips with a smaller pair, and they fit much better. Second, you can bend a portion of the ear hook to adjust them for a better fit around your ears. After making both of these adjustments, the Powerbeats Pro fits snugly in and around my ears without feeling uncomfortable, even while moving around vigorously. Add the fact that these earphones are water and sweat resistant with an IPX4 rating, and you have a winning combination for use during workouts. One caveat, my workouts are generally less than an hour long, so I haven't tested whether the Powerbeats Pro earphones get annoying for longer wearing periods. In any case, if you just don't like the feel of an ear hook around your ear, these are not the earphones for you. One of the most subtle yet cool features of the Powerbeats Pro is its controls, because all of its functions can be controlled by physical buttons on the earphones or through Siri commands. Specifically, you can control volume up and down, pause play, and skip forward back using physical buttons and with Siri. Now, there are times when I don't want to speak out loud to control my earphones, like when I'm with a group of people, so physical controls feel more appropriate. Other times, I'm using my hands for something else, and I don't want to interrupt what I'm doing with extraneous hand movements, so Siri is a better option. Powerbeats Pro can be easily controlled in either situation. Like AirPods, you can listen to either left or right earphone at a time, and you have full control with physical buttons from either earbud. You can also listen to either earphone one at a time if, for instance, you want to keep your other ear open. Like AirPods, Powerbeats Pro have sensors to automatically start playing when you put them in your ears and pause when you remove them. 
You can also send, answer, and decline phone calls by pressing the Beats B button to invoke Siri. As I mentioned, I don't use AirPods because they don't stay in my ears. But one complaint about AirPods I've heard from Allison is that the only physical control they have is a double tap on the left or right earbud. You can assign the double tap gesture to be pause, play, or skip forward back as a separate control on the left and right AirPods, so two functions total can be physically controlled. Remember that Siri still needs an internet connection to work. By the way, when is Apple going to fix this? So if you're in a location where your internet connection is weak, like down at the beach where we run every other day, you'll be limited to controlling just the two functions on your AirPods that you've assigned to the left and right double taps. Not so with PowerBeats Pro, where every function can be controlled with physical buttons. When you do have a good internet connection, PowerBeats Pro Siri functionality is identical to that of AirPods. In the two weeks I've been using the PowerBeats Pro, I have not yet had a Bluetooth dropout, which is more than I can say about any other earphones I've used. I have, however, been in situations without an internet connection, and so no Siri control. If you don't use an iPhone, you can pair Air PowerBeats Pro with other mobile devices, but you lose some functionality, like Hey Siri. But in those cases, you can press the Beats B button on either earphone and get voice control with a variety of other mobile devices. PowerBeats Pro earphones have the longest listening times of any earbuds on the market that I know of. Each earphone provides a whopping 9 hours of listening time, and with the charging case, you can get 24 hours of combined playback. Need a quick charge? A 5-minute fast charge gives 1.5 hours of additional playback when the battery's low. Since I use my earphones about an hour a day, I can get away with charging only once a week with PowerBeats Pro compared to having to charge every 2-3 to three days for others. Now for one of the most important features of earphones, at least for me, and that is how they sound. I have to say right up front that the overall audio quality of PowerBeats Pro earphones is the best I've heard from earbud-style headphones that I've listened to. For brevity, my comparison of PowerBeats Pro audio won't be extensive and is limited to just three other wireless earphones, the older generation PowerBeats 3, the Jabra Elite Sport, and Apple's AirPods. The first concern I had when I heard Beats was coming out with new earphones was would they be too bass heavy, a characteristic of most Beats headphones. On the flip side, bass is often missing with earphones since it's difficult to make a small speaker vibrating at low frequencies move enough air for you to hear it well. PowerBeats Pro have managed to strike a balance with rich bass that's not too heavy and is evenly distributed. Listening to some selected songs, there were some bass lines that I simply could not hear with the Jabra Elite Sport and PowerBeats 3, but they came through clearly with PowerBeats Pro, similar to the bass delivered by AirPods. At the audio high-end, PowerBeats Pro shine as well, producing very clear trouble with crisp violins, finger snapping, cymbals, and other percussion. I've heard at least one review commenting how the PowerBeats Pro high frequencies have been pumped up too much, but I don't find that at all to be the case. My only complaint with PowerBeats Pro Sound, and it's minor, is that the low end of the mid-range is a bit de-emphasized. Not enough to be bothersome, but just noticeable. This could be an issue when listening to some vocals competing with instruments having loud bass and highs. PowerBeats Pro sound quality, in my opinion, is just a notch over AirPods if I hold the AirPods in my ears, since they don't fit well. 
However, I don't hold AirPods in my ears, so I lose much of that sound. I put both PowerBeats Pro and AirPods sound quality in a distinct category above both Jabra Elite Sport and the PowerBeats 3 earphones. One final note on audio quality, PowerBeats Pro do not have noise cancellation. For my use case, that's okay, but it could be a problem for others trying to hear audio content in a noisy or windy environment. Although PowerBeats Pro provides some isolation from exterior sounds, you can still have a conversation with others while wearing them. This may be an issue or a feature for you. PowerBeats Pro come in four colors, black, ivory, navy, and moss, although as of this writing, they're only available in black. The other colors are shown as coming soon. PowerBeats Pro are available for sale at the Beats by Dre website for $249.95, a full $50 more than AirPods with the wireless charging case, and $90 more than AirPods with the wired charging case. So they're clearly priced at the high end of earphones in this class. So in summary, let me list my pros and cons of PowerBeats Pro earphones. The pros are, they stay in the ear securely during active use, They provide full control with physical buttons and with Siri. They're water and sweat resistant. They provide great battery life. And most importantly, they provide top-notch sound quality. While the cons are, they cost a lot. They have a large charging case that requires a wire for charging. They have an ear hook that can be annoying for some, although not for me. And they're only available in black for now, but other colors will be available later. For me, the pros really outweigh the cons, and PowerBeats Pro have become my go-to earphones. I would recommend them to anyone who wants to hear rich sound while being physically active and is willing to pay for it. So until my next review, that's it for now, Allison, and I'll be sure to stay subscribed. Well, I know that's kind of mandatory that he be stay subscribed, but I think he actually does listen to a lot of the show. Anyway, thanks a lot, Steve. That was a a really, really good review. I think that's one of your best. Well, I've talked a few times about how the Patreon model is awesome because you are 100% in control of how much money you pledge to your favorite content creators. If you're having a tough month or a tough year, you can dial it back and dial it back to zero. But did I ever tell you that if you're feeling extra generous or maybe felt that my latest podcast or blog post taught you something of increasing value, that you can actually dial up your contributions? That's what Martin Stein did just this week. He was already one of the most generous supporters, but he actually increased his pledge. I really appreciate even the smallest contributions that do so much to help fund the work of producing the shows. Now, you know me, I'd do it for the love of the sport, but it's a lot more fun to do it knowing I'm not losing money to create the shows. If you'd like to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast, head on over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and be cool like Martin. I mentioned earlier that in Chit Chat Across the Pond this week, I talked to David Woodbridge about Samsung Tech. During the discussion, we wandered off topic for a while when I mentioned that I bought a Tesla. It spawned a discussion of how you can't hear electric vehicles coming, say, in a parking lot. Our buddy Ron, who has driven Teslas for the last five years, warned me to be very aware of that in parking lots in particular. He said that it's really common for someone to be walking along in a parking lot and suddenly veer right in front of him because they simply don't know he's there. Steve and I have made a ritual that whenever we're driving in a parking lot, we say out loud, 
no one can hear us, no one can hear us, in hopes that we'll be able to keep that in front of our mind and ingrain that into our brain so we don't forget. Now, imagine you're blind and this electric vehicle is driving around everywhere. How terrifying would that be? As you can imagine, David is not a fan of electric vehicles for that very reason. According to Vision Australia, the company where David works, and Monash University Accident Research Center, in an article on The Driven, they have a study that says uh, that it reveals that 35% of people who are blind or have low vision surveyed had either a collision or a near collision with an electric or hybrid vehicle. I know that's self-reporting, but it still is a pretty significant statistic, I think. I found an interesting article on Mashable that describes the legislation that's going into place in the European Union and the United States to compel companies that produce electric vehicles to add a noise to them, at least when they're at low speed. The idea is that once a car gets up to speed, the wind noise and tire noise on the road is enough of an audio indicator that the vehicle is there and added noise is no longer necessary. The speed above which it doesn't have to make noise is 12 miles per hour in the EU, but 18.6 miles per hour in the United States. Evidently, fluid dynamics laws of physics operate differently in different regions. In the U.S., all electric vehicles will be required to make noise by September 2020, and 50% have to make noise by this September. The EU directive goes into place, quote, by 2021. Sadly, the article points out that in spite of Vision Australia's work to change this, Australia has no legislation on the books at all. But focusing on the good news, Mashable put together a set of audio clips of the noises the different audio auto manufacturers are planning to put into their electric vehicles, and it's pretty interesting to hear these ideas. I'm going to play each of them for you from the Mashable article. We'll start with the Citroen, uh, how do you pronounce that, Citroen? Uh, AMI 1 concept car. I think this was recorded in a noisy environment, probably a car show, so you're going to hear voices in the background. I'm pretty sure that's not part of the car sound, because that would be super confusing. Anyway, let's listen to the Citroen. I think that one was pretty cool. I like the kind of rhythmic effect of that. Next up, we're going to hear the Nissan Leaf. This one's kind of a high squeaky sound. Nissan decided to give the backup sound on the Leaf a different sound, which is interesting. Mashable refers to it as reminiscent of the beeps truck make, trucks make when backing up. Let's listen to them going forward first. not sure I like that one. That, that one's kind of harsh, but I do like the reverse sound. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I don't like the reverse sound that much. It's still, it's still an awfully high frequency. I mean, you're definitely going to know the car's coming, but it's, it's not a pleasing sound. My favorite though is the Chevy Bolt. This really sounds like a car of the future to me. Well, I do like that one. Finally, we're going to hear the Harley Livewire electric motorcycle. I am not going to play the whole clip because I find the sound nearly as annoying as an internal combustion engine motorcycle. 
Okay, I can't stand that one. That one's just horrible. You know, Sandy in the live chat room asked a really good question. She says, if all the cars make different sounds, how are blind people going to know that it's a car coming? Are you going to go, oh, look, that's a Chevy Bolt because it sounds like a car of the future. That's a Harley Davidson Livewire electric motorcycle because it's really annoying. Well, I guess it's better that it makes some sound than no sound at all. Anyway, I'm disappointed that Tesla didn't respond to Mashable's request for the sound they're going to deploy. I'm very curious to see whether Tesla is already building the speaker and software into the cars right now and will simply flip a switch in September. They do that pretty often. They put in hardware that's not yet enabled in some way and then just do a firmware update to the car. So it might be on August 31st. Is the 31st one days in August? Anyway, the night before September 1st, they don't make my car doesn't make noise and the next day it does make noise. I really hope it does make noise because I do not want to hit somebody any more than they want to be hit. Good friend of mine and great geek David Sparks has created another one of what he calls his video field guides. This one is all about Keyboard Maestro. Keyboard Maestro is really poorly named, I think. It's not just a tool to make something happen when you hit a keystroke. It's really a very advanced automation tool designed to help you be more efficient. I've been wanting to really learn and dig into Keyboard Maestro for a long time, and even with a basics course by none other course by none other than Don McAllister on Screencast Online, I still couldn't figure out a use case for it. I mean, I did a couple of little things, but they were kind of dumb and they didn't really work, and I couldn't really dig in and, and understand the full depth of it. Well, David's video field guides are much more detailed, and in fact, this one is over four hours of video content. He's using a new tool to distribute his video field guides called Teachable. He's able to produce this long-form content into little bite-sized chunks. I don't think any of the sections is longer than five or ten minutes, and many are only two to three minutes long. This means you can dip in and out of sections you want to learn or go back to a section to see it again without having to fish through a four-hour long video. If you like to go methodically through a course, as I do, I know you're shocked, you can mark each section as complete so you can figure out where to pick up the next time you sit down to learn some more. David's style is always entertaining, so I don't even fall asleep when I'm trying to learn from David. By the time I was 12% of the way through the course, I'd sent myself three notes of things I thought Keyboard Maestro could do to save me time. One example was I figured out from watching David's field guide was that I could have Audio Hijack auto-launch whenever I plug in my microphone. I never use my mic without Audio Hijack, so why should I have to go through the tedium of launching the app when I'm going to use it every time I plug in my mic? I told David about this usage, and he challenged me to create a couple of scenarios, depending on what my what type of recording I was about to do, so to like have a picker come up on screen to choose what to do when I plug in my Mac, uh, my mic. So I do a completely different setup when I'm doing the live show than when I'm doing chit chat across the pond or when I'm recording on something like Clockwise. I'm not that advanced yet, but you know he's got me thinking about how to do that. I'm now only 49 per, or I am 49% through David's keyboard maestro field guide and I'm looking out I'm looking forward to carving out more time to learn from the master. I know this sounds like an ad, but you know me, if I don't like something, I'm not going to tell you it's awesome. After I gushed on Twitter about how awesome his keyboard maestro field guide was, he offered me an affiliate code, but I had already gushed and I had already written this up before he offered me the field guide. If you've been wanting to learn Keyboard Maestro, I can highly recommend David's field guide as a way to learn. 
But there is an introductory uh, price of $24, which expires at the end of this week. I'm not 100% sure, but based on his other tutorials, I think it goes up to $29 after that. But still, four hours of tutorial for less than 30 bucks is, I mean, that's less than half minimum wage, right? If you want to learn more about the course and potentially buy it from David, go to learn.macsparky.com, hopefully by clicking the link in the show notes so I get a little benefit from the affiliate code. Anyway, I'm having a lot of fun. I've learned a lot more, and uh, I can't wait to finish this course. My father had a lot of weird sayings that I didn't completely understand. For example, when I was misbehaving, he would threaten me with, I'm going to cut you off too short to hang up. Never did figure out what that meant. When I asked a question that was too vaguely worded to have a unique answer, he would always say, how big is a lump of coal? Well, this week in our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook, Denise asked me how long it takes to charge the Tesla Model 3, and I answered, how big is a lump of coal? I'm sure she appreciated that answer as much as I did when my dad would say it. I'd like to be a little bit more helpful than that in this article. Let's start with some discussion of the charging profile of batteries in, in general, because it's fundamental to understanding the answer to Denise's question. According to Electrek.com, Tesla's use lithium-ion batteries now with less cobalt. I've included a graph in the show notes from a great site to learn about batteries called Battery University. Seriously, there's like a, a PDF you can download that's got all these great charts. It's really, really interesting for nerds. Anyway, in this chart, you can see the charge time across the horizontal axis and the charge capacity by percentage on the vertical axis. There's a lot of other things plotted on this graph, but the charge capacity line is the one that interests us. From zero to around 60 to 70% charge, the rate of increase in capacity is linear. That is, every minute of charge causes the same percentage increase in charge. But at about 65%, the rate of change starts to slow down. In this particular battery test, the time to get to 100% is three hours. In the first three quarters of an hour, the battery gets up to 70% of full charge. But to gain an additional 25% takes another 0.75 hours. The last 5% takes 1.5 hours. I'm sure you've experienced this with your cell phones where a 15 to 30 minute charge will give you a great boost when your battery is low, but it seems to take forever to get to 100% charged. If I was to answer Denise's question on how long it takes to charge, I'd need to know what percentage charge the car had when it started charging and how much it needed to have when it stopped charging. Probably not going to run the battery to zero because that's very bad for lithium-ion batteries and probably not going to sit around waiting for it to get 100% either. So. How big is a lump of coal anyway? Electric vehicle charging is highly dependent on the charger you use on the car as well. They rate chargers in kilowatts, which we have learned in previous battery discussions is actually a charging speed. When you plug the Model 3 into a charger, you can see the kilowatt speed of the charger, but you can also see it in a much more sensible metric, miles per hour. I know that sounds funny, but you don't really think in kilowatts when you're wondering how long will it take you to charge up to go to a specific distance. That's miles per hour. So let's take two dramatically different examples. In a U.S. household, our outlets are normally 110 volts. If you plug a Tesla into one of these outlets, you can expect to charge at 3 miles per hour. I don't drive very far, so getting 24 miles of charge while I sleep every night might actually be fine. But that's really inefficient. 
My long-range Model 3 has a range of 310 miles, so my answer to Denise would be several days to charge from 0 to 100% on a 110 outlet. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you have what Tesla calls superchargers. These things are beasts, as Chris Ashley would say. We took a recent road trip with the Model 3 and stopped at a supercharger in a town called Lebec along Interstate 5. I took a photo of the screen in the Tesla that shows my battery being charged at 500 miles per hour. Remember, the 110 charger was 3 miles per hour. If I had come in at 0%, which I didn't, and that charge rate was linear, which we know it's not, my answer to Denise to charge from 0 to 100% would be 37 minutes. But that's also not true. While we're on the topic, the screen when you're charging is really cool. It shows a grass graphic of your car with the seats missing and the battery that's underneath showing. As your car charges up, the battery turns green from left to right until it's all green. Basically, the bottom of the car is the battery. Under the car, there's a set limit button. When you tap that, you can slide down from the right to change from charging to 100% to only, say, charging 90%. Tesla recommends when you're charging daily for just tootling around town, you don't want to charge the battery to 100%. Battery University talks about that too. Keeping the battery at 100% is very bad for lithium-ion batteries. But when you're going on a long road trip, you want all the miles you can get so you can drag that limit to 100%. Back to the supercharger speed of charging. We know it doesn't stay at 500 miles per hour for the whole charge, and in my very few experiences, I've seen it drop to around 340 miles per hour as I get up around the 60 to 70% range. But another thing can change the charge speed. When you drive into a Tesla supercharging station, you'll notice that the chargers have numbers and letters on them, A or B. So you'll see 9A and 9B next to each other. If you charge your car in slot A while someone else is in slot B, you'll actually be sharing charging. I was watching mine charge at 500 miles per hour and a guy pulled into the stall next to me and when he started charging, I saw it immediately drop to 320 miles per hour. Not half speed, but a definite drop. So now I have to ask Denise, how much charge did I start with? How much was my goal? Was it on 110 volts at home or supercharger? And was I sharing or did I have one all to myself? All that before I can answer her question. But wait, there's a lot in between 110 volts at home and supercharging in a supercharger station. In reality, you'd have to be pretty desperate to charge at 110 volts at home. You can buy a wall charger for your house to condition the power for a 240 volt outlet. Turns out, two things are important in that next equation, volts and amps. When an electrical engineer in your house says 240 volts, he or she may also say, I don't know, 220 volts. Drives me bananas how electrical engineering has so many variable numbers. Like, why isn't it just 240? Why is it 240, 220? I don't know. Maybe it wasn't that much of a joke when Michael Keaton in the movie Mr. Mom was asked whether he was wiring in 220. And he said, yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. That isn't that dumb. In any case, we bought the wall charger unit from Tesla and had an electrician run the power for us. I ran a speed test on it for you so we could talk about a middle ground between 110 volts and a supercharger. On the screen, I can see I'm drawing 40 amps at 227 volts. Seriously, 227. In any case, the screen shows I'm gaining a at a range of, I'm gaining range at 33 miles per hour. Okay, a 110 volt outlet usually supplies 20 amps and gives us around 3 miles per hour, while a 227 volt 40 amp charger gives us 10 times the speed. If it was linear, 
which it's not. And if I started at zero, which I'm not, and I went to 100%, which I won't, I can charge my car in about nine hours at home. Now, we can probably surmise that normal usage, I could charge it from pretty much pretty low to the 90% recommendation at night when I'm sleeping and dreaming of current and voltage. But there aren't just superchargers or home chargers. Turns out you can charge lots of other places on completely different kinds of chargers. I looked in the ChargePoint app Rod Simmons recommended, and there's a 20 mile per hour charger around the corner from my house at a BMW dealer. A Honda dealer another few blocks away has a charger that will do 150 miles per hour. So I better stop talking about all the different chargers, but you can see why which charger you have makes a big difference. Here's yet another variable to answering Denise's question. Which Tesla model you buy changes how long it takes to charge. On the site where Tesla sells the wall charger, they've got a chart that quantifies the rate at which your car will charge, depending on how many amps your circuit breaker can supply at 240 volts. Oh yeah, those amps change the answer too. But here's the even more interesting thing on the chart. It shows the miles per hour gained at the same rate of charge in kilowatts as being different depending on which Tesla model you have. For example, on my 50 amp circuit breaker, which for some reason can only deliver 440 amps because electrical engineers are annoying, at 240 volts, the wall charger can deliver 9.6 kilowatts. For that configuration, the Model 3 gains 37 miles per hour, the Model S gets 29 miles per hour, and the Model X gets even less at 25 miles per hour. Steve and I began speculating on why the same rate of charge, 9.6 kilowatts, would cause differing increases in range of the vehicle. We surmise that the difference is in how much the car weighs. The heavier the vehicle, the less distance it can go on the same bucket of electrons. The Model X is a relatively large SUV. The Model S is a very large sedan. And I would put Model 3 in the midsize sedan category. I looked up the weight of the standard range Model S and Model 3. The Model 3 weighs 76% of what the Model S weighs. The Model S gains 78% of the range per hour as the Model 3. QED, Steve and I are correct that the range gain per hour is highly dependent on the weight of the car. I just realized that they could make this chart even more complicated. Each of the three Tesla models come in standard and extended range versions. I'm betting that since I have the extended range, that's why my car gets 33 miles per hour instead of the 37 miles per hour on the chart for my volts and amps. All right, in my studies at Battery University, I learned something really interesting about lithium-ion batteries. They don't charge at all if they're at or below zero degrees C, also known as the freezing point for water. Lithium-ion batteries are also not fond of charging above 45 degrees C, that's 113 degrees Fahrenheit. But Tesla pushed out a firmware update to the cars just this quarter that does something fascinating to help with this problem. In the navigation system on a Tesla, you are offered the option to navigate to superchargers. If you select one to which you want to navigate, the vehicle will actually use its HVAC system to cool or heat the battery to a temperature that will ensure the best charging experience. How cool is that? All puns included. So, Denise, in answer to your question of how long it takes to charge, I have just a couple of questions for you first. All I need to know is how charged it was when you start, how high you want to charge, what type of charger you're going to use, whether you'll be sharing with someone else, which Tesla model you mean, and how long of a range was purchased. And by the way, what will the temperature outside be? A more helpful answer would be that at home, I charge while I sleep, and it's always full when I wake up. 
And on the road, I stop for a half hour or so, have a cup of coffee or a sandwich, take a bio break every few hours, and I'm on my merry way. Oh, and you should see the luxuries at some of the supercharger stations. Well, soon I'm going to be coming out with another installment of Tesla Tech entitled How to Get Body Work Done on a Tesla Model 3 When Someone Rear-Ends You When Your Car Is Two Weeks Old. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to join our Facebook group like Denise and make silly comments to me? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack group where we've been having fun talking about JavaScript and programming by cell, all kinds of fun stuff. Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to Podfeet.com slash live, normally on Sunday nights, but on this coming week, Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, Join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.